Hello, how are you? Hello, Michael. I'm doing, as usual, excellent. I feel like you've been traveling this week. Yes, I'm currently in Lucerne, Lucerne. which is or a place close to Lucerne. Yeah. Which is around 120 kilometers south of Basel, where I live. I see you brought your very fancy microphone with you. Yes, yes. And I finally learned about mic placement. You did. You're addressing it properly. You sound amazing. Thank you. So do you. Yeah, but that's my thing. <laughs> that's my whole brand. <laughs> I'm not supposed to sound that's smart true. like you. I'm just supposed to sound good. I'm not sure I'm doing either one of those things. <laughs> You're doing just fine. I feel like a traveling gypsy right now. Just traveling all over and talking to fantastic people. Well, you know, every other recording that we did for the show, I was in Singapore. And I'm just so happy to be home now. But I feel like the last time I was in Singapore is like 10 years ago now, even though it was only like 10 days ago. Anyway, who is our guest today? Who do we have with us? We have a very inspiring CEO today. His name is Ashil Sime. Why do I feel like I'm constantly underperforming? He's the CEO of what? <laughs> he's the CEO of SL Financial I love and it. SL Financial DRA. What's DRA? Let's ask him that. Hello, Ashil. Ashil, it's very nice to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I am doing super. What is DRA? Like the financial part, I think I can understand. But what's the DRA yes. part? Well, DRA stands for Data uh, Repository and Analytics. Oh. Okay, that's even more interesting. So before we get to the central part of this conversation and learn more about DRA and SL Financial and about everything else. Let's learn a little bit about you. Can you give us a bit of your background? Oh, my background, um, very interesting. So born and raised in Cameroon, Africa. I, lay, uh, I moved to France to go to college. Uh, I studied in France and I started my career there. And then I wanted to keep traveling so I started visiting a few other countries uh, for vacations and I started uh, stumbling uh, in Houston with my, where my cousin, my cousin used to live. Nice. And I wanted to, to kind of try it, try the American dream, try the American way. And in the summer of 2004, 2004 I started looking for, for jobs in the U.S., I was obsessed with finding a job. Everybody was telling me that it was not possible, but uh, I like challenge. So I start looking and looking and looking. And a year later, I, I found a job and the jackpot I was, it was in Miami. In so, Miami. Summer 2005, bye-bye Paris, welcome Miami. Uh, what, where did you go to France to study? And can I ask this too, just for people's edification. So Cameroon is in like North, not so far north. It's like central Western Africa, right? And yes, is it a French-speaking country? Is that one of the reasons why you went to France? It's a French-speaking and English-speaking. Uh, Cameroon was not a traditional colony. I didn't think so. It was uh, a protectorate. Uh, after it was, Cameroon was uh, belonged. I was was. Uh, was not colonized by the French and the British, but it was uh, under the protection, the protectorate of the two countries after the World War, oh. after Germany lost the war. So before it was Germany, it was in Cameroon. And that's why uh, Cameroon speak both French and English. It's because uh, mm -hmm. after the World, World War, the, com the country was split into two. Got it. Uh, two portions, one speak English, one speak French. Got it. And when you went to school in France, was that all in French? Yes, it was all in French. Unbelievable. I used to have English classes. but. <laughs> <laughs> do you know any other languages? Uh, I do understand a few dialects. I mean, the dialect where I'm originally from. Mm -hmm. I don't speak very well, but I do understand. Uh, there are more than 200 dialects in Cameroon. Even wow. in, the, in the region where I am from, Mm -hmm. West region of Cameroon, you still have a couple of dialects. So even within the same region, there's some tweaks in and differences. I love it. So when you went to the US and looking for a job, why did people tell you you won't find one? Uh, 
I mean, it was in France. People in France were telling me that it was very <laughs> difficult. You have to be very lucky, very connected, and it's impossible that you'll find a job. Maybe your best bet is to try to go do an MBA, do like a, do extra curriculum, do some more study, and eventually you'll find a job. Did you have to retrain re yourself when you came to the U.S.? Yes. Uh, I am an actuary. Mm -hmm. mm, it's a very interesting field. Nobody knows about it. <laughs> But only only insurance company knows about it because they like us. They like us. They um, need you. What do you mean they like us? The doesn't exist without actuaries, does it? <laughs> exactly. So I was an actuary. I was trained actuary. I'm an actuary. I was an actuary in France. Uh, when I, I arrived to the U.S., luckily I found a job in a French company as a staff. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, there's no mutual recognition between the French system and the U.S. system. For what? For actuaries? So, for actuaries. So as an actuary in the U.S., a uh, French actuary in the U.S., I was telling my beautiful story. I was selling myself and all I was hearing is that that's very good, you You must be very very smart, so you you should not have any problems starting over and and passing our exams. Right. <laughs> so I eventually eventually I decided to do it because uh, I needed my credential in the U.S. So, so, so it's, like it's, like, it's like being a doctor, right? So my brother's in-laws are doctors, studied at the best university in Korea, came to the United States, and they were like, "Yeah, that doesn't matter." You've got to then go yes, again take I, the medical board. So same thing, yeah? It's the same thing. In, in, actually, in France, you actually is at PhD level. So you, you have an actual thesis to wrap up your studies. Oh, wow. Because mm -hmm. at, when you are a fellow actuary or fully qualified actuary, you cannot go up. I mean, that's, that's the last level you can, you can climb. You're basically a doctor of philosophy in actuarial science. Really? Mm -hmm. Yes, when you complete your 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 qualification, you you are on the top. So did they? So you're a PhD. Fr yeah, sorry. In France, do they call people doctor? <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it's not like in the US or in in the in the in the English speaking countries where yeah. the, there's so much emphasis on being a doctor. Yeah, fair enough. In the US, in in France. No, they don't. There's many. There are many doctors in France. So, <laughs> now the difference is, what school did you do? What field are you in? That's what the differentiator. The differentiator is. Do you think that the American system of actuarial training is better, different? Now that you look back, do you think you needed it? Uh, I would say it is not. It is not better or, or worse. It is mm -hmm. different. It's complementary, I would say. Um, the French system uh, put a, put uh, emphasis on the fundamentals, like you go deeper into the the core of the different study. You you go deeper into the theoretical aspect of it when you are trained, and then. You have the foundation to take your career wherever you want. You don't have to pick a particular field when you get trained. You don't mm -hmm. specialize early. You learn everything. And then you choose where you want to land. In the US, you have to specialize at the very beginning. Like okay. you have to choose whether you want to do life, property casualty, pension, etc. And then you are stuck with that. <laughs> You are probably very, very, very good in what you do because you are very specialized earlier, early on, and then you are trained as you go because you mm -hmm. work and you take exam at the same time. In the French system, you need to get into actual health school with a very tough exam, national exam. So not everybody makes it. And then you have three-year program then you have to, to satisfy all the requirements from the university and from the actual organization. Some people are trained as actuary, but are not 
uh, are not credential actually because they did not meet all the requirements of the actual organization. And then you have to wrap up with an actual thesis with a particular topic that you drill down and then you study it and then you implement it. You have to be practical, not theoretical. Mm-hmm. And then you, you, you defend your thesis in front of a jury. So it's different, it's complementary, I would say. I think uh, I think it makes you, I mean, having done both, make you more, more averse. In, in the US, earlier on, you emphasize much on accuracy. You don't, the system do not care whether you know exactly what you're talking about. It's about, can you get the right answer, right? You need to, you need to do, get the right answer. That's, that's all we're asking you to, to do. Do you know what you're talking about? It's not the problem. <laughs> so when you you get to the first level, which is associate, mm-hmm. and then you, you want to go to fellowship, now the exam become more, more interesting because they ask about your judgment, about your assumptions. They, they ask more of you. And now you, you simply doesn't need to only know how to get the right answer. But there's a lot of emphasis on getting the right answer in the in the U.S. system. Got it. And that level of smartness led you to open your own gig, then. Yes, I think that was the that was the idea. Because if I was if I didn't do it again, I didn't start over. I was not able to sign any official document for insurance company. There only there are documents that only actuaries or qualified actuary can sign. And that are mandatory for insurance company to submit as part of the financial statements. So the first, uh, the first step into being independent, or eventually one day, was to have the credential. So once I had that, I spent ten years with the company I joined in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And um, I was approached to join another consulting firm in Bermuda. So in 2014. Uh, in 2015, I spent two years in Bermuda, but I was working half-time in Bermuda and part-time also from my house. So I was traveling back and forth between Florida and Bermuda. It's not too long. And um, I, do, I really enjoy the, the, the approach that the Bermuda, that Bermuda implemented for that small little country uh, to be able to, to have something to say in the in the world about a particular topic in this case insurance mm-hmm. and um, I think I was inspired in Bermuda by my former boss to also start my my own consulting and that's where we so, met yeah so that's how um, I decided let me let me jump on my own and try it is entrepreneurship something that is in your family? Do you know what I mean? Like, is were your mom and dad running their own businesses and stuff like that? Or are you the first person in your family to have your own shop? I'm the first. Um, I will say that the, the tribe or the region where I am from in Cameroon mm-hmm. are renowned for being entrepreneurial. Really? So it's probably in, in the gene somewhere, but uh, in the family, my parents know, but my brother had um as a consultant and in the it he put his career on hold he ran the shop for three years then sold it and then returned to corporate and uh yeah <laughs> i mean we i think i think uh, the the region where i am from in cameroon are renowned for for being quite entrepreneurial how has that journey been so far because you're traveling two continents. Yes, it's been very good. Uh, uh, running my company allowed me to target things that I want to do. Uh, for example, I wanted to keep doing some Bermuda work, so nobody um, refrained me from doing it. Uh, I'm doing some work in Florida. I'm trying to have an uh, innovative solution for companies. Uh, I want to do somehow some pro bono consulting for Africa and some emerging market. So I'm, I'm, I'm able to do it. 
without any restriction. So it's been it's been a good journey. What what's the nature of work for for you? In other words, what does the consulting look like, and what's the difference between SL Financial and DRM, DRA, DRA, so, okay, DRA. So SL Financial is traditional consulting or advisory. So basically, what we're saying is, you are an insurance company or a bank or any type of any type of organization that uh, need to deal with uncertainty, risk. Yep. Uh, because we can we can also advise uh, traditional companies uh, to set up self insurance program or captive solutions. So what we do is to say you have a risk, you have an uncertainty somewhere that you deal with. You want to quantify it. You want to put a price tag on it. You want to anticipate. You want to make decision based on what could happen in the future. Mm-hmm. And you need an advisor, somebody that is trained to deal with that. And you either give advice. You either help them to to determine the level of um, of money, the limit of the, the amount of reserve that they need to have in their book because insurance company basically an insurance company basically sells a promise it says uh, i'm going to be there for you so that's that's the business plan of an insurance uh, but even the insurance company do not know if they're going to be there tomorrow i mean without actuaries <laughs> <laughs> does that mean this is super interesting though does that mean like are you selling that service to companies that are getting insured or the insurance companies or both yes uh both for example insurance company mainly insurance companies they need actual services so we assist them to either determine the price to charge for, for customers yep. determine the reserve you know many areas now traditional companies like Facebook, like you know, like Tesla, you know, you you Elon Musk recently said he won actuaries, right? Because as a big corporation like that, you pay a lot of money to insurance companies for liability for different things. And you can set up your own company, your own insurance company to cover your own risk. And that's called a captive. Uh, and then you need an actuary to determine and to help you set that up. So instead of uh, Tesla purchasing insurance from AIG, let's say just to say to name yep. two companies uh, without wanting to make publicity for anybody, <laughs> but uh, imagine that scenario: you pay, you can pay the double if you you go to a commercial insurance company. Instead of that, you for the amount of money you pay, you can. You can actually pay that amount of premium to your company that you own. But who underwrites that? In other words, it, that, that's great, right? And Tesla's going to do that, and other companies going to do that too. And I want to talk about the impact of InsurTechs in a second. But if I set up my own insurance company, right, someone's got to underwrite it. I guess, that, is that like in an MGA structure? Is it just in a regular insurance company structure? What does it look like, and who underwrites it? So when you set up a captive, it's basically an insurance company as any other, other insurance company. Yep. So you can have an actuary determine the premium. And an actuary determine the premium is how much you charge for, for to cover the risk. Yep. And you can have somebody managing the, the accounting, the day-to-day operation, and you can have an actuary determine the level of capital that you need to have in that captive and the level of reserve that you need to put aside for the claim of the future. Got it. That's it. it. You you can have a captive manager to manage the day-to-day. You don't need to underwrite anything. If you have enough capital, you cannot even reinsure that. If you don't have enough capital, you can transfer some of the risk to other insurance companies or insurance companies. So is there... Is there a situation where, let's say company A sets up a captive, the captive hires an actuary, they hire you, you figure out all the risk calculations, they figure out what they have to reserve, so they don't have to underwrite it, right? Because 
almost by definition, that money that they're setting aside is set aside to cover future risk. That's what you've calculated for them, right? Yes. But there may be the case where nothing ever happens, right? Where that money doesn't actually get used to cover any risk. Now, a real insurance company, not a captive, but a traditional insurance company will take that money and then put it in the stock market, the bond market, invest it in a whole bunch of other things, right? To make a return on it that's higher there than was, just putting it in the bank. Do, do captives do that yeah. as well? Yes. I mean, you, you have a regulation around where to invest the money that is stacked for risk that is uh, allocated to pay future risk. But when the risk is expired, so if the risk is still on, you have regulation how to invest that money, what type of asset you need to, you can invest in. Yep. You need to be liquid enough to be able mm -hmm. to be sold to pay for claims. But when the risk is expired, you can distribute to shareholders. So traditional company will distribute uh, dividend to their shareholders uh, based on the profit. And a captive is it, owned by the, the main company, so it's the, the, the money stays in the company or they're in the group. They just take it back. Yeah, so that's the beauty of it. What does risk expiration look like though? Like what? when does risk expire? The risk expire because uh, typically most contracts have a duration like I cover you for that period of yep. time, yep. for a particular period of time. And then we do the calculation, actually do the calculation when the risk is expired and when that money can be considered as profit. So then this leads me to a very controversial question that I think we've been reading. Uh, can data scientists replace actuaries? <laughs> uh, that, that's that's the, the, the question. For my, my own opinion is that um, is that uh, insurance is a complex business and regulation uh, make it, it make, makes it even more complex. Mm -hmm. uh, and regulation it doesn't make it complex for no for, for for no reason. And the reason being protection of the consumer. Uh, it's a business where the, the the information is not shared well between the parties. Yeah, you you are the insurer. You don't know anything about insurance. You have insurance. They know everything about insurance. You know, the asymmetry of information is so huge that the regulator step in to kind of make sure insurance company don't don't take advantage of uh, of the of the of the insurer. So the capital is needed to cover the risk, so all these things. So barrier to entry in the insurance makes the data scientists replacing actually debate kind of difficult because mm -hmm. you need to incorporate the law, you need to incorporate additional things than the science to mm -hmm. be able to really manage an insurance company. That's my own perspective. And that's what the, the actual training, the actual training kicks in, um, but Actually, actually taking over data science in the insurance industry is what we want to do. Actually, so mm -hmm. we are open to do it, but we mm -hmm. we don't think we don't think data scientists will come in and replace actually because of this barrier that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And do you still see this this trend in the emerging markets that you want to offer a service to? Still, the actuary plays a role, or is that role too too premature? If I may ask that. The, the role is not utilized to its full potential in the emerging market because they have other priorities in the emerging market. They need to eat first, you know, the basic. Um, you have all these complex things where all they want to know is uh, usually mandatory insurance. They don't have a choice. But when it's mandatory, then yeah, they, 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 they rather take the chance of not, not insuring anything. So and they utilize the, the talents or the actual skill set uh, but the paradox of the emerging market is that they are dragged into the future with all this talk about AI and, you know, digitalization, you know, and they cannot, they cannot stay back because other portion of the industry of the, of the world evolve like technology, the, the smart, the mobile phone, the electronic money, the FinTech, Everything has evolved in the society. So even though they want to stay in the past or they want to stay put, 
they are kind of dragged into you know make make the change so i don't think they can they can live in in otasi in their own world like they want to do like i mean the under utilize the skill set of actuary in the emerging market but i feel like they will have no choice than to kind of come back and talk to us i mean i'm talking about the insurance industry in the emerging mm-hmm. market yeah. and is there difference in the industry in say emerging markets in africa and asia do you know the um, i would say Af- i would say asia has taken the the lead already to kind of take the take advantage of the technology mm-hmm. uh, i think africa is still lagging a little bit but um just a lot of um a lot of buzzword a lot of talk about africa being the future one point something billion people by 20 something and then everybody is buzzing about it and everybody want to make some move um i mean it's uh the power of the number will will mean something and but we still see a lot of we still have to see what's going on after covid and everything's changed the, the establishment in the world is, is shifting a little bit is shaking so africa can 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 take can can take his pie of the of the apple is part of the apple pie but uh it needs to the leaders over there need to actually have the vision to do it uh, instead of still instead of always stay on the back seat and try to 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 hold back is that part of what you want to do with SLDR maybe you can explain that a bit yes that is exactly what i want to do with SLDR SLDR it's um like i mentioned data repository and analytics so my my assessment of the situation in emerging market is that the value of service is uh, under utilized it's not as recognized as in the west they are they are very tangible they 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 believe in what they see right you don't see your mathematical model they they're like okay you are very smart that's good but when they see something that's what they value they are very pragmatic in the emerging market so that's why i wanted to kind of diversify what i'm doing uh my offerings in the emerging what be with traveling around in the in the continent you know people being re- very resistant to the idea of change to the you know the service you know the idea is is an intangible uh, product like actual science you know they don't see it. uh when when I, i start asking the question what is your biggest your biggest issue what do you face the most what is your biggest issue as an insurance company everybody almost everybody has been saying data data quality quality of data makes makes us um, you know want to not do anything because you know we don't believe in the data therefore we just kind of have a gut feeling about things that's how they want to manage insurance company without data just gut feeling so that's when i decided okay let me try to to see what i can do here it's a big challenge because sldr um they are they are very advanced tech or data analytic company in the us and sldr i want to to be that for for the emerging market which is not existing because it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of um, eventually some money it take a lot of courage to even go there so what is uh, what's your biggest challenge if you said the biggest challenge for the insurance companies are data and data quality right what's yours yes. do you think about i mean maybe you're already doing this right but do you think about going back back it may maybe the wrong word but do you think like building an, a business as well in africa we're just like you said it just seems to me like 1. something billion people 50 something countries lots of venture activity now taking place in northeastern africa in the central east and central west part of africa there's a ton of like startups and all this kind of stuff bubbling up do you follow that and think about 
God, that's a gigantic opportunity? Or is it still the American dream? Do you know what I mean? I do follow that. I mean, one thing I, one thing somebody told me is a big intercontinental reinsurance company in Africa. And I, I met them in South Africa in 2019. Okay. And one of the, the executives there told me the first thing, first five minutes after we start talking, he said, well, uh, America doesn't need you as Africa needs you. So you need to come America back. doesn't need you. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he told me. Is that what he said? And he's it, kind of right because uh, uh, resources are scarce in Africa. It takes a lot of courage. My goal or what I'm trying to do is doing the African dream uh, mm -hmm. with the influence of, of the Europe, the European dream or the American dream that I lived. So trying to shape the African dream. So that's if I, if I want to respond to your question. Uh, no, I'm not trying to live the American dream, but yes, I'm trying to live the American dream because if SLDI can raise money in the Silicon Valley, of course, I'm, I'm going to be the American dream. That's going to be the American dream. But if you impact Africa in a way that no other, no other company, no, not, not every investor, like somebody from the diaspora, make it happen, it's, going, it's also going to be the African dream. So basically cherry picking on the best of what I've received in the different places where I live, I'm trying to put that together, optimize things for the benefit of the people in Africa and for myself to live the dream as well. Yeah, it's tricky, right? In other words, sorry, Renu, but I think it's super tricky, right? My entire adult yes. professional life has been outside the United States. Like, I can't, and I'm putting in quotes, go home. I got nowhere to go home to. Do you know what I mean? I haven't lived in the United States in 30-something years, but I'm probably also 20 years older than you are. So, but this lived experience that you've had, do you think it would make it difficult, do you know what I mean, to go back? Because you've had this whole professional life in Miami, in the United States, obviously in Bermuda as well. But is there something I go back to? So, I mean, my one of the, one of the things I've been able to do in 20-plus years out of Cameroon is that I've, in average, I've been back every two years. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. So the last, actually, since I started the company, I've been back every year, and some year I've been there twice. Uh, in 2019, one of my craziest years of travel, I've been to Cameroon twice. Then I've been to South Africa. I, I came back from South Africa. I've been to vacation in Jamaica. I came when I was in South Africa. A client called me that he wants me to present at the board of director in Mauritius. Okay. I was in South Africa. I came back. We had vacation plan. We came back. Went to Jamaica. Came back to Miami for a couple of hours. Oh, then flew back to <laughs> flew back to to Mauritius. So I've been I've been on the continents a, a lot. This year I've been to Nigeria, Cameroon, South Africa in the space of a month and a half wow um so yeah i've been i've kept touch with uh what's going on um it's not that i'm, I'm i have a, a set date to go back i don't but um if like i mentioned to that guy uh, that executive um if you need me in africa make me the proposal the addition proposal like yeah, just it's not it's not I'm not doing it just pack and come. Just right. make 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 me come. You know what what do you have to offer? So um I'm doing my part in terms of slowly but surely doing something. And then if opportunity comes to jump in full fully, then so be it, I'll do it. But if not, I'll and then we, we, we have families that also have ties everywhere. So we have Europe and we have France and we have US. So to coordinate that is kind of it's kind of difficult. So all you, all you can do is to, to put bridges between the different continents and then being able to use them. Makes sense to me. Renu? Are you fundraising now? Um not yet. Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to fully 
validate the proof of concept. So what I would be able to build with SLDI is a prototype. Mm-hmm. I've been able to get into some accelerator program. I've been able to get in front of some potential early adopters uh, that ask me for to submit proposals. So that's my my immediate focus. Mm-hmm. Try to get one or two, three early adopters to kind of complete the cycle to prove the concept. Then I'll have something to say to investors, and then I think I'll be fully ready. Maybe you you might disagree with me that you're not really fully. <laughs> you're <laughs> fully ready. That'll tell you. For you're sure. fully ready. Yeah. But uh, I don't it's... close the door to. Yeah, I mean, if you of, wait until you're fully if... ready, it's too late. I think. Exactly. Exactly. So. Do you want to raise money in Africa or in the U.S. or Europe? I think. I think. Um, US and Europe uh, would be faster for sure. Mm-hmm. I think the Af- African investor will tend to give money in slow, you know, in slow pace. Then they want to see a result. They want to give you a little bit, see some result. You, you know, when in the Silicon Valley, somebody like you, they, they make you one million dollar check and say, "Well, just call me if you need more." <laughs> <laughs> Just call me if you need more. But uh, as a founder who is, let's say, diverse, like me, have you faced challenges in, you know, trying to sell your product, talking to people, getting the first touch with clients, talking to insurers? Um, that's a very interesting, a very interesting topic. And as a multiple founder, I'm. I've run my consulting for seven years now, and I, it's not something that officially happened. Like it's not that somebody told me or something happened. It it's a feeling, but it's also a feeling that was validated by, by a CFO of a, an insurance company that was a client. That as a minority you you trying to be like in the league of where you people of your kind you usually are not right so yes you will you get in front of people you pitch they like you they find you you are smart but it's still like something that's that they don't make the move either they don't tell you the truth or there's something else. Um, but you are able to talk to them. You are able, you are able to, to, to get in front of them. They are, they are, they are able to even give you product project when you are surrounded by maybe another company. Mm-hmm. But when you come by yourself, they feel like you are too small. But that's the official reason they tell you. Well, mm-hmm. I've been to, I've, I've, I had an RFP one day, uh, I think it's a local government in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, I respond to the RFP with two companies selected for final. I was selected, they flew me in for interview. I had the interview first and the second firm has the interview. So the setup was that it was a self-insured program Mm-hmm. with a risk manager that was going to retire and they needed and they, so the, the the incumbent actuary that they have been using for 30 years was retiring mm-hmm. and the counterpart internally that he was working with for 20 something years was also retiring oh wow mm-hmm. so they need a new actuary while they were also changing the department uh, internally so the feedback of the interview was that you perform better than the other firm you are the best interview everything was best but the f- the, f- the, the 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 government the, the the decision was to give the contract to the other firm officially was because they are a bit bigger and since we are, we have 
two people retiring. We don't feel like we can actually take the risk of giving you, but we'll open the RFP again next year, etc. So feels like a bad move. Uh, yeah. And then one of my, the CFO I was mentioning one day, I we had we went to lunch was in Tampa, so I visited the client and then we went, went for lunch. And then he was like, Ashila, I feel like there's so many companies in Tampa that will need your service. I know at least three or four. And then he told me out of the blue, because I was telling him, I'm trying, I'm teaching, I'm sending, I'm knocking on doors, etc. He's, he's listening to me, listening to me. And then I said, said, did you ever, did you, did you think about hiring the old white retired dude putting in front and let it let him do the sell and then you just come and do the work <laughs> i was like okay okay where does that come from <laughs> it's like well you know i'm not saying it is what it is but uh i feel like if you do that you will have much more success than you, you currently have i mean i've been told the same thing so i completely understand and uh, but then what do you want to do? Because this is a challenge that, you know, we faced. We talked to people who faced that. So we can either decide that we're still going to keep our path and continue and persist. Or we're going to do something that makes us slightly more attractive. Mm-hmm. We are fabulous already, but we want to be a little more conventionally attractive. So what, what do you think you're going to do? I mean, I think um, so the first thing that I'm doing is to diversify into other market. Mm-hmm. So I have some some good success in Bermuda, in the Caribbean, and Africa. So for for the U.S. market, for the U.S. market, eventually might be to join a bigger firm. Uh, as a partner, that's eventually, uh, but uh, that that depends on what they offer. But my, I think my 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 strategy is to have a dual approach to it. Uh, in terms of how do I approach this market versus how do I uh, do elsewhere? So I, I feel like out, out of the West, I don't need to do that, even though. Even though uh, the old generation, like the the, govern, the the government that we have in Africa, post-independent, uh, are still kind of, uh, you know, following the lead from from leaders in the West and big companies in in those com- in, in the in the continent also are, have tied with the West, so. You coming from the diaspora is kind of an advantage uh, in that regard. So, and in, in some in some cases, they trust. I mean, they they give an easier path or a red carpet when they see a white man than when they see you from the diaspora. You you are you are just like you like us, and you just you just happen to to go to travel there, you know. So uh, that, those are challenges uh, that you face, but um, like I mentioned, the dual approach and wait and see. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what you have any anything that you do in particular that can add to my to my strategy. Maybe. Well, I do have a lot of thoughts, but I think that you know, if you know that you are onto something good. Um, persistence is really the key and then i think you find people around you that uh, compliment you but that's from a you know pure skill um skill perspective and then that also comes through partnerships right because insurance is such a long game so the idea of forming bonds with people who've been there for me kind of solves that issue a bit because who we are we can't change and we shouldn't exactly we, mm-hmm. right and so just the nature of the industry for insurance you find partners that complement you and probably make you doubly attractive to the industry yeah. so i think for me that's the 
pragmatic approach? Yes, I think you are definitely right about it. Yeah. I think that's when what I had in mind. I'm saying when I'm saying for the US market, eventually, you know, partnering or adding something to an existing um, company saying, I'm going to focus on this angle. Mm-hmm. Then, then that's um, like a partnership you mentioned. Yeah. Michael, you've been quiet. What do you think? <laughs> Um, I think it's super tricky, right? Because, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, why are you building something? What are you really trying to accomplish? And in the context of that, what am I willing to trade for what I'm trying to accomplish? And everybody has to make trade-offs, everybody. And the real question is, what's that trade you're willing to make? And, you know, Mm -hmm. if at the end of the day, you're trying to build something that you want to be big and sustainable, like how much pain are you willing to take? To, to build that. And everybody has their own pain. Some of that pain is more visible, like starting something from scratch and building something from scratch and building something in a market where, you know, you're not whatever that traditional person is. I mean, I, I live in Thailand. <laughs> it's different. But, um, and it's a different shared life experience, right? For sure. So I don't know I don't know what that feels like per se, but I do know what it's like to walk into a room in a place where I'm not the same as everybody else in that room. Mm-hmm. And they just take for granted that like uh they're better than you are. And I didn't know what that was like until I was like twenty what's the right age? I'm gonna let's do the right number, twenty-four, twenty-five years old. But it came into pretty stark contrast for me what it was like to be a visual minority and to actually have somebody say to my face, um, yeah, we don't want your kind of person in here, but we do know people that like you and you can go there instead. Um, yeah, but then again, I was born a white guy in, in, in California. So the things that I need to lean on are different. But if that's your everyday day-to-day experience... It's just a different way of living, right? But at some level, you do just have to decide, like Renu said, and like you said as well, right? What kind of partnerships can I make to make my offering stronger? And what kind of pain am I willing to take to go through that to to get it? And how much am I willing to give up to do it? And I feel like even for myself, which again, I'm not living, I don't have the same life experience, right? So it's different. But I keep asking myself, am I building something for me? Or am I building something for like the next generation? And I, I always default to, and I was joking with Renu about this a couple of days ago, right? If you're willing to eat somebody else's pizza, then you're definitely building something for the next generation. And mm. if that's the case, I've just decided I'm willing to take a ton of pain to be able to build that. And, you know, is there any guarantee that that's going to get built? Not for me, for sure. But it's just how much pain am I willing to take? That's what I think. But I feel like in a way, Ashil, I feel like you have benefits. Your home, and I'm putting in deep quotes, yeah, market, is just about to explode. Like there's a secular change taking place in the world, at least from my perspective. And I could be wrong, right? Because again, I don't have your lived life experience. But, you know, Africa at some level and particularly where Cameroon sits in Africa, right? It sits in a really great geographical spot, right? So yeah. it's sub-Saharan, right? So it's not non-unfertile yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like the last place on earth that hasn't gone through this transformation. And it's gonna go, right? And you go all the way back to the end of World War II, Japan was poor, Korea was poor, India was poor, China was poor, Central America and Latin America were poor, and you really only had Europe was destroyed, America was ascendant, but now everybody else, every, every other place is getting rich and it's kind of like consolidating around this central mm-hmm. part of Africa and the rest of the world is going like, we can't keep the poverty there forever. Mm-hmm. And you're like a highly intelligent dude with connectivity to the continent. 
and it's weird, right? Because I've been thinking about this recently. Like, just the place you live does not, because of the way technology works, the place you live doesn't have to be the place you build. So you don't have to exactly. give up your life in Florida, yeah. which is probably awesome to build in Cameroon and the rest of that part of Central Africa, which is just about to explode. And if you look at what's going on in like, what's trying to be this, I, I wanna get the name of these countries right, right? In Rwanda and Burundi, right? Which are trying to match mm -hmm. what happened in the UAE and in Singapore to be the financial center of Africa. You don't mm -hmm. need to be there either. It's yeah, just kind yeah. of a cool time. I don't know what the answer is and I'm definitely not as smart as you are. And like I said, I haven't had your lived life experience. But boy, it's kind of cool for me to be able to live in Thailand and like build a business for the rest of the world while still getting all the cool benefits of living here. Yep. And not fitting in at all. <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful. Yes, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, I think in that sense, COVID was kind of a game changer because yeah. uh, it, it is now mainstream to to do that before yeah. it was more like well when do you come when do you visit <laughs> right now it's like i can't even get on a plane you're like great stay there <laughs> yeah well i guess we're global citizens who's everything got equalized because of a virus our standings got yeah. equalized well think about it there's no i think about this a lot right there's no reason why a guy who's born in California and a gal who's born in India and a guy who's born in Cameroon should even know each other, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. But here we are having a conversation about how to change the world. And I think that's actually kind of cool. Anyway, um, we've been at this for almost an hour. And what, I, what I'd love to do, Ashil, is to just come back in like six months or nine months and just kind of catch up, see how things have changed, if anything's changed. And that sounds good, yeah. I'm sure it will. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Ashil Sime. CEO thank at SL Financial and SLDRA, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for staying around after the, the first few misses. <laughs> it's all good. Thank you.